Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ASCP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hi, my name is Edna Garcia, and I am a guest host for this episode. I work as the Director of Scientific Engagement and Research at ASCP's Institute for Science, Technology, and Policy here in Washington, D.C., And today we're talking about workforce initiatives policy, and we have um, a very few exciting guests, which we'll take a minute to let them introduce themselves. So we can start with Sue. Hi there, I'm Sue Skillman. I'm the Senior Deputy Director at the University of Washington Center for Health Workforce Studies. And I've had the great pleasure recently of uh, working with Edna on a study to examine and amplify information about the medical lab workforce. Hi, I'm Allison Flores, and I am the manager of the Flow Cytometry Laboratory and Hematopathology at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. It's my pleasure to speak with you guys today concerning the topic of workforce policy in the medical laboratory profession. Great. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, As you know, CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the AACP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. AACP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Thank you, Loti. And so just to start off the conversation, I would like to share some, a little bit of historical information. So ASCP is turning 100 years old next year. And um, our first published reports on workforce, mainly in the form of wage and vacancy surveys were distributed in 1988. And we've been doing these two surveys for about 33 years now. The core questions on these surveys remain the same, but for example, we've added new section on both the vacancy 2020 and wage 2021 to include the COVID-19 questions and how it has and continues to affect the workforce. Um, But over the years and ever since I came on board, we've been adding more workforce studies with different topics. More recently um, are the published reports on job satisfaction, well-being and burnout of pathologists, lab professionals, and pathology residents. We also have some summer fellows here at the Institute, and um, some have conducted research on disparities in rural health, rural health care, and the challenges that impact the lab field in these areas. Some have looked into the wage by gender, um, recruitment tools for high school and community colleges in the DMV, um, as well as looking at partnerships with other student support organizations. And we've also developed our online interactive maps that incorporate the findings from the ASCP wage and vacancy surveys, um, where you can view your salaries and vacancies by state or by region. In addition to what I just mentioned, our data are also used for advocacy and development of toolkits and courses, such as the negotiation toolkit and burnout courses by Dr. Mulder. We also present these data at various conferences, podcasts such as this one, as well as webinars. And so this year, we released our groundbreaking report on the Clinical Lab Workforce Study, entitled Clinical Lab Workforce, Understanding the Challenges 
to meeting current and future needs. And this study was in partnership with the University of Washington's Center for Health Workforce Studies. And um, one of our team members there is here with us. Thank you for being here, Sue. For this report, we assess pathways leading to lab careers, the opportunities for professional development, and factors that support clinical lab workforce diversity and retention. And so since it's been released, many activities have been developed um, and continue to develop from this report. I know that uh, UW's team produced a policy brief, and I can have Sue talk more about that later. We've also had poster presentations, conference sessions, talking about the report, as well as our blueprint for action. So the findings and recommendations from this report will guide many of our activities moving forward. Fantastic. Thank you, Edna, for a summary of all the amazing work that you all have been doing uh, with this report and for the last 33 years. So my first question is, what are the most critical challenges currently facing the laboratory workforce? Well, I'd say that this study that we did with ASCP really opened my eyes to the many details of this workforce that I hadn't known about, which points out that the laboratory workforce could definitely benefit from broader publicity about the exciting opportunities that are possible working as a laboratory professional. I think there's some great uh, need for more publicity, make these jobs more widely known. So before it's time, the idea of automation or robots would grow, and we wouldn't need as much medical laboratory personnel. However, today, we find that technology advances are creating a more complicated laboratory environment, and tests are becoming more complex. Therefore, the most critical challenge is finding a skilled workforce for these needs. Employee burnout rates creates another challenge for today's laboratory. We can lose great talent to competition. Oftentimes I see outside of a hospital laboratory where pay is greater and employee satisfaction is better. Edna, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Um, I agree with um, what Allison and Sue said. I also wanted to add, I think one of critical challenges is program closures. And we already encounter challenges recruiting um, in the workforce, but I feel like instead of closing programs, we need to really work um, and advocate for opening more programs because I, I think that we will continue to need more lab professionals in the future. How about we talk about diversity for a moment? What are your thoughts on why diversity is essential to the future of this profession? I can kind of start a little bit. I attended a the AAMC conference earlier this year, and there was a session on that talked about why diversity is important in the healthcare field. And they listed, I think there was four reasons as to why. And the first one is, number one, to improve access for patients. Um, the second is to improve cultural competency for healthcare workers, in our case, lab professionals. They also uh, mentioned improving equity and advancing research. But what do um, both of you think about when it comes to diversity? Um, yeah, I can just amplify a little bit what you just said, uh, Edna. I think that this question can be answered from the perspective of social equity, as well as from the perspective of practical ways to meet growing workforce demand. And this applies for lab professionals as well as for other kinds of healthcare careers. Um, first, the healthcare industry provides, in general, solid jobs 
The majority of them have good wages and benefits. So it would be wise of us to carefully examine our systems to make sure all capable people have equitable access to these jobs. And the more the workforce looks like the population it serves, the more access to healthcare will be improved. I think that's a common theme we hear a lot of. But also where the industry is finding it difficult to recruit and retain workers, I um, humbly <laughs> recommend that the industry check to see if you're truly opening the door to everyone who can fill those slots. So by looking to see if your workforce is as diverse as the patients it serves and identifying where there may be problems in recruiting that diversity, uh, there may also be answers to some of the recruitment and retention problems that the industry is having. Thank you, Sue. Allison, what are your thoughts on this? So I agree with Edna and Sue's comments, and I'll expand on that. When we have a diverse pool of employees who come from various cultures and backgrounds, then there is a more equitable representation of clinical laboratory workforce across these different communities. So this is very critical for underserved communities. When, for instance, children from underserved communities go on to pursue a professional education after graduation, it increases the likelihood that they will come back to their communities to be with their families and find work. So the laboratory workforce isn't exclusive to hospitals or reference labs. We need laboratory workers in the community as well. It's interesting you mentioned that, Allison, because when we were doing our focus group, there were a few supervisors and educators who mentioned growing your own. And they have been having some programs that really promote that and they recruit students and kids from these communities. So just like you said, they're more likely to stay in the community and they already know probably a lot of people and they know how their community works and what they need. What are some specific ways that we can recruit a more diverse laboratory workforce? Like, are there any, do you have any specific suggestions or tips or ideas that you can share with our listeners? I can kind of start with that from our current report, as well as our past um, studies. We have been hearing the desire to really start recruiting at a younger age instead of just looking at community college, high school students, we got to go younger, K-12, you know, tailor activities to expose them to the lab field. Allison, you, you had something to add? Yeah, I also agree with um, some of the uh, responses as well from the report that you should promote and cultivate from within um, we find that um, people who don't easily have access to education or healthcare oftentimes don't go outside of their comfort circle to be able to find work and be successful. It's natural for uh, families who come from these remote areas or rural areas that the first thought in their heads is to support their families. And in order to support their families, they are physically close to them. And they should find work. So targeting communities and creating partnerships with the programs and education that there is out there uh, is an open door. Um, it, it doesn't hurt to ask how they can benefit these people who can also benefit back and provide a workforce for their own. Um, I would just add that in our interviews for this study and for some others, uh, particularly talking to community and technical college program folk, 
So the lab occupations, one thing we heard from quite a few places was that diversity was coming from the community in which the program generally drew, and that we didn't hear a lot about direct efforts to increase diversity coming from the programs. While there was recognition that that was important, there were too few resources to do that, except in a few cases where we talked to programs in those community and technical colleges that overall made a very concerted effort to recruit more diverse students. I will say that from those programs also talked about having the kind of wraparound services that uh, Allison was referencing, I think, that provide the additional kinds of support that some people need in order to make it through an educational program, be it extra tuition resources, childcare, tutoring kind of thing. So there could be a lot more done in that area. I think there could be some best practices shared. Um, But again, sometimes these training programs, particularly in the colleges, are not, they're not standalones. They they have to work within the system they're in. And so figuring out how to to build those systems and promote that is um, a place to start. Yeah, what you said really reminded me of how if we don't only want to create a diverse, a diverse workforce, but also want to retain them, that we need that inclusion part as well, right? It's, it's not just enough to have a diverse workforce. Now what you're doing to actually retain everyone, to make it inclusive and make it equitable. Absolutely. So, Allison, you, you mentioned the concept of burnout. And, you know, I think especially with the last year and a half that we've had, and uh, enormous strain that that has put on our laboratory workforce, how will our experiences with COVID shape the future of the field? Well, I've seen a lot of shift in the workforce during the COVID pandemic. The positive impact I saw with laboratory workers was their agility to adapt to a new normal. Many stepped outside of their routine responsibilities and learned new practices and skill sets. Conversely, we were negatively impacted um, by the burnout, as you mentioned, and as workers had to social distance and to respond to increased workloads at times. We saw this, for example, in the supply and demand at blood donation centers. The pandemic did highlight this laboratory workforce, our laboratory workforce, as an essential frontline worker. So the future of the field needs to include training for workers for another public health crisis while sustaining operations so that we can continue to provide for our routine laboratory services. Sue, did you have anything to add? Yeah, as Allison just said, the pandemic caused the healthcare system overall to pivot fast, and lab was one of the key players uh, that had to change their focus uh, and do it quickly. I think there's some great opportunities for the lab field out of this. And back to one of my first points about uh, the visibility and recognizability of lab professions. What are ways to build on the visibility of all this testing needed to identify and track COVID? And how can we leverage that to increase the profile of laboratory professions and interest people in working there? Who draws that blood sample? Who does the testing? What is an antibody test? Uh, What are all the exciting elements of this testing and its important applications for health? I think that now is a really excellent opportunity to create the media campaign 
teams that have the, the, the images of the people in these fields and the wonderful things they do and the roles that they do and really make an imprint. Uh, so when people think about healthcare, they don't just think about physicians and nurses. That lab professional is right up there and, and people start learning how to say, I want to be a phlebotomist. I agree with both of you. And from our report as well, going back to that, many of our focus participants indicated that, yes, it highlighted our profession, but they still look at us as a homogenous group. And so I think we should take this opportunity to really um, not only highlight the profession as a whole, but the different types of lab professionals and their role, not only before the pandemic, but at the same time, you know, during the pandemic and moving forward. And to add to that as well, I wanted to also kind of mention the training programs. They also were affected by the pandemic because a lot of them had difficulties finding clinical rotations for their students. And that kind of delayed some from graduating, um, especially last year. So they mentioned that it affected their fulfillment of degree requirements. So I'm not sure how many did not graduate on time, but I'm sure that it probably affected our pipeline where a lot of lab professionals are needed, especially at this time. I did see firsthand, not the medical laboratory trainees, um, but I did work with a lot of medical students. So it's very parallel where their rotations were arrested in development. So in lieu of that, after talking also with a colleague at one of the medical training programs um, in California, she found that, and I found that students did take that time that was arrested and jump onto the front lines. Um, so they used that, those contact hours that they were on the floor, on the field in response to COVID to be able to put their skills at work. And that was a substitute for their delay or their lack of training. Thanks for sharing that, Allison. And so with that, I'm going to move on to asking you, actually, what attracted you to this profession? And do you think there are ways we can leverage those aspects of the career to address the challenges we face in terms of recruitment? So I've always wanted to pursue a career in science. I was an undergrad at the University of California, San Diego, where they're known for their medicine and research but I did not want to pursue a medical degree yet or be a research scientist. So I still wanted to have a job that made a difference. And I volunteered at a local community hospital. This is where I was placed as a lab volunteer. I was pushing papers for an LIS manager and a laboratory director. But I learned what medical technology is and what the career ladder presented I took that initiative to find other career paths than during my undergrad. Um, but if there is more visibility at schools in communities that lack that kind of support during their education, um, it, then it creates better options for graduates to pursue something else other than what um, they're known to be, you know, aside from being a doctor or a nurse or a scientist. I found a career in medical lab because I took that initiative to go ahead and see what else is out there. And thankfully, it put me into this profession. Uh, just a question on that. How did you come about, come across the profession while in college? 
Did, did you see it from a posting? Did you talk to a counselor? Did you hear it from someone? I actually, it might have been more by luck. Um, having a science degree, uh, I do have a biochemistry and, and cell biology degree. I did not want to be a lab rat in research. So I looked at other ways to work in a laboratory. So it was through that finding maybe some internet search where, where can I apply my skills? And when I saw that hospital was needing volunteers, um, especially in a laboratory, I then went for it and I decided I have no background. This is my opportunity to learn and I'll go for it. And that's what I did. Yeah, when I was in college, I went to UC Davis. And um, when I was in college, I never heard of really of lab professionals or, or the lab profession. Um, I don't see, this was back in the day, so I don't know about now, but I didn't see any flyers or if you go to the counselors, they don't really talk about it much. I see a lot of, you know, nursing med schools opportunities, but not much about the profession. So yeah, that was my experience. Sue, do you have any anything to, to share or add about I would just say that what you're saying fits right into the recommendations out of our report, that this is an area we really need to work on and make more readily available the identity, these identities and early on so that um, this is a garbage statement here. So <laughs> recruiting people into this field starts with having people recognize what the field is and what the opportunities are. And you've just spoken to sort of accidental ways that uh, you know of bumping into these occupations and, and then it worked. So how do we make it less accidental and more purposeful? Exactly. Yeah, because I was I always hear um, stories about it, people finding it accidentally or like talking to someone who is an MLS. Or we had one participant who had whose mom was an MLS and that's how she was exposed to the profession. But rarely I hear that they found it from their counselor's office or someone advised them to, you know, that this is a good profession to get into. Well, we've joked frequently that what we need is the CSI, the lab, and then have that TV show. And then each of these occupations will be clearly labeled and there'll be some attractive personality in that role and, and we'll have the drama and then it'll stick with people. What I, you know, I want to be the, you know, the, the histotechnician just like, Name the actor, name the actress. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> so, Edna, in the beginning, you mentioned that the workforce survey first launched 33 years ago. So I'm just thinking back of well, and how the workforce looked back then, but then also how uh, the medical science programs, how much they've changed in the last 33 years. So... When we're looking at the programs now, how can they improve their curriculum to better prepare and retain the workforce, the current workforce moving forward? I'm not a lab training director, but what I've been seeing is that there are some research out there that already talks about clinical competencies for future graduates, that it is really important for the new graduates to have all of the skills that they need to start working in the lab. We've also, I've also seen some studies on developing 
a training module that can be used across the country for programs. So there's, you know, uniformity and that way the expectations are the same across the board. What do you think about this, Allison? I also agree that clinical competencies are um, needed because it is an active tool while someone is employed. And, you know, the same should be said for when students are in their training program. They get exposed to be evaluated um, for their skills. And that's just a a baseline for them so that they can grow. Well, I'm not an educator or a clinician, uh, so I can't address the fine points of medical lab science, um, of lab science curriculum. But that tie with industry is critical. And I know most of the training programs have industry advisors, and that's great. Because clinical training is such a problem, not just with lab professions, but with all healthcare professions, that tie with industry, not only to make the curriculum as relevant as possible to industry needs, also is critical so that those uh, clinical training sites are available. So to the extent to which uh, there can be even more attention to what does industry need, what does industry Uh, say about the curriculum and how it meets their needs, that kind of connection can be leveraged to increase or retain the number of clinical training sites that are out there. So I'm not sure exactly how to do that, but I do think that there's a a, a resource there, there's an avenue that should be uh, kept open. So one of the things I also think that isn't taught in some curriculums and not limited to the medical science training programs is a course in ethics. Though this has been something that we've been working on for a long time, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's important to break down barriers in society and focus on providing quality services in the laboratory field. Because again, we a lot of what we do requires customer service. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, I did a lot of outreach and community volunteer work It exposed me to the importance of my laboratory profession and recognizing that your work that is for the good of the community shapes how we conduct our work. So the return and self-gratification is a reward and is the annual bonus that retains our workforce. Well, thank you for bringing that up, Allison. I actually have a question um, with regards to that. Does your institution or do you know of any other institutions that communicate with the training programs in your area and talk about these things? Is there some kind of like a formal meeting that discusses, hey, you know, this is what we think lab professionals um, need to learn before they even enter the workforce? Or is that something that you just mentioned a program director? As a uh, former trainee from a medical laboratory program, I can speak to that. I haven't been exposed to any type of course or talk on that specifically. Rather, I can't speak for other program directors who do this, and I don't know of any. But I have, after training, I have become the trainer, and I've integrated that work style so that I can help enrich the future workforce to not only be able to do the technical skills, but be able to execute them so um, gracefully and artfully. I think that's important to teach people 
as I do make the uh, analogy when I get medical students who come through or residents, um, it's important for them to understand not only the work that they're looking at, but be able to talk to the people that they're working with. It creates a better environment for everyone to work. And then you receive that satisfaction from everyone that you work for. Well, thank you for that. Sue, I'd just like to build on that a little bit. I think those are excellent points. And it reminds me of, first of all, emphasizing how important when we think about curriculum and we think about education and training, that we not just think of the beginning of the process, but the incumbent workforce and the ongoing continuing education that's necessary and how important that is to both keep the quality of the services provided up, but also uh, those are retention tools to provide continuing education. The other thing that Allison reminded me of is um, how important uh, interprofessional education is, both, again, at the beginning of the education process as well as uh, in with the incumbent workforce. And that's an area that we at the Center for Health Workforce Studies are, are increasingly being involved in uh, some interprofessional education kinds of uh, policy and practice work. And we've recently had the opportunity to uh, make a point of uh, how important bringing in the lab professions into the inter into the interprofessional education, uh, how important that is. Lab professions and other types of occupations that are not necessarily directly at the bedside or directly the provider practitioners, but uh, those teams, those interactions, that communication is really critical for patient care. It's also critical for the satisfaction and retention of the workforce. So we will continue to do what we can do to keep that point um, emphasized. Sue, I called Allison about um, in one of my questions earlier. So I'm going to ask you, since you are not a lab professional or a training director, but you help conduct this important research for our field. And I know you've, you've already mentioned some of the things you learned throughout putting this report together. Do you have any uh, thoughts on the advocacy piece? that we can do to not only promote the profession, but, uh, you know, maybe improve recruitment retention in the lab and increase diversity. Would you have any thoughts on how advocacy plays a role in that? Working on this project really provided a great opportunity to dive more deeply into this field and to get to know the lab occupations better, as well as uh, the tremendous opportunities for good employment that they provide. As I've mentioned previously, some barriers that we've observed and that our report highlights are that the field lacks the materials for a good, what we call elevator speech. And as you probably know, the elevator speech is that short argument that can be completed when, for example, you're in an elevator with an influential congressperson and you need to make the case for investment in building and promoting the lab workforce before you get to where that congressperson is going to get off of the elevator, Right. So, you know, it starts with the difficulty concisely and consistently stating what occupations you're talking about, which occupations actually make up the, the lab workforce, and a consistent terminology for those occupations. There's a long history as to why there's that problem, and I know ASCP has this uh, front and center of things that they're working on, but we would just... Um, uh, emphasize that that's, that's a good starting place is to get the terminology for the occupations really nailed. 
And it's not just one occupation. I think that there is that tendency, and we've done it today, to say lab occupations or lab professions as if there's only one occupation. Well, the occupations range from ones that pay you know, 30000 or less a year to, you know, the sky's the limit. The education and training requirements are very different. So I think that distinguishing their complementarity and, and emphasizing their complementarity, but also distinguishing what these different occupations are would be really helpful. Uh, if we want to interest high school students in the field, for example, that identity needs to be much more easily recognized. And our report talks about um, several ways to do that. The routes that people take to get into these occupations vary tremendously, and that could be an asset, but it would be useful to make available some kind of map or something that shows, and this may exist, but somehow make it more available, make use of a map, a guide showing the pathways into these occupations. So someone, like we've heard Allison and Edna say today, will know ahead of time when they're in a bachelor's biology program that they could use those skills in different ways to leverage into a, a good job in the lab, as a laboratory scientist, for example. So um, that's a start. The more the, those strategies are nailed down and commonly understood by people in the field, the more people will be able, there will be who will be able to make that elevator speech with those Congress people when they get with them and want to make that pitch to, to you know, where to invest some funds to support and strengthen the lab workforce. Allison, do you have anything to add? You spoke about the elevator speech, Sue, and I actually have recently spoke with one of my former program coordinators for the medical lab training program, where she's keeping up with the times. Um, people want more visibility. They, you know how we follow social media. When you post something or you say something, it it catches on and becomes a trend. So she's asked me to, for instance, uh, come in Zoom guest speak for her students to talk about the professionalism about the occupation. And, you know, if we catch on to this uh, trend, maybe it's another strategy that we can expand on, or it's already there and we just need to let it grow and network. But that 15 minute speech that I will give, I will speak to not only the profession, but, you know, everything else that you can reap out of it. Great, and maybe we should think about a social media or CSI lab via social media. So start some vignettes that can, you know, or get a TikTok. We need it on TikTok. The people on TikTok that you want to know about lab occupations. One of the programs that ACP has is called ACP Patient Champions, where we share videos of how the lab saves people's lives. And a lot of those videos ended up being used as recruitment tools as well. And I, because they're incredibly effective in, in showing that even though you may or may not have direct patient access as a laboratory professional or pathologist, though some clearly do, you are actively involved in saving people's lives. I was going to say to that, I don't have TikTok. I don't know how to use TikTok. It's a good tactic to ask a teenager how to post something. And then they'll say, oh, what is this that you do? And then they'll start asking questions. So I think it, it is a good you know, way to kind of introduce it to them. I agree. I agree. I watch TikTok, but I, so far I haven't seen anything about the lab. So, you know, I think we should think about starting some. Um, I see a lot from like doctors and nurses. 
but I have I haven't yet encountered one that's um oh actually I saw one a phlebotomist saw one <laughs> sounds like there's a great niche for us to fill regardless yeah I love it so uh, one of the things on the workforce report, other than the data that was collected, are also some strategies that you all identified. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what those strategies are and what your thoughts are on them? Allison, do you want to start? I agree with the strategies that were outlined in the report pertaining to medical laboratory scientists. It was recommended that outreach and partnerships achieve recruitment. We do lose talent due to higher paying jobs in other similar industries. An effective way of recruitment is to recruit from within, as we've mentioned earlier. As I have said, most critical areas in need of laboratory professionals are from underrepresented communities. If we can focus on these community members to provide them opportunities with our laboratory training programs, then not only can we benefit their future, but we can benefit their community as well. Sue? Like we mentioned in our report, this requires actions by collaboration among a wide range range of stakeholders. So it involves the lab, both on the, the institution and employers and the lab training program end, as well as professional organizations, possibly industry. So it'll need a lot of actors so that we'll be able to implement the, the strategies that we presented. Sue, do you have anything to add? I'll just say, yes, yeah, those actors or those stakeholders or in some of our work, we call them trusted leaders. Uh, the report uh, has a lot of recommendations under three general categories, improving the visibility of the clinical laboratory occupations, improving workforce recruitment and retention, and focusing on diversity and inclusion in the laboratory. I think there are different actors or stakeholders or trusted leaders who are best suited for each of those. And so I think that the navigational here is to uh, match those folks up with the need and then, um, you know, encourage everyone to afford and multiply, uh, help to identify resources, but uh, this is not a take one step and then take the next step sequentially. All things should be done at once, I think. And from the report, we were also able to develop a blueprint for action where Sue mentioned we had three major aims and under each aim we developed a number of recommendations that includes the actors and the activities that we recommend these actors do to be able to move forward what we would like to happen for the future of the profession. And uh, right now um, it's still internal, but eventually we will share that to the field as well. Just as a side note here, Edna, remember we have those bullets in our report, it's out. So the Blueprint for Action will amplify those. So finally, we wanted to ask, we would like to ask everyone a question about retention. So what has this report taught us about professional development opportunities, wage progression, and so forth, and how can that inform our practices going forward? Any any final thoughts on that? I'd be happy to go first because retention is one of my things. <laughs> the more I work in health workforce research and planning, the more frustrated I get with how little attention is paid to retention. My go-to saying is 
It's not just about the spigot, that is the education spigot. You can keep producing more and more of occupation X, Y, or Z in our education and training systems. But if there's a hole in the bucket you're pouring them into, you'll never be full. So too little attention to retention is the hole in the bucket. Some questions that I typically ask of employers when they give me the opportunity is <laughs> that relate to retention is how does your salary and benefit compare with other employers? You know, are you losing people due to the competition? And we've certainly heard that here uh, with uh, the lab field. Is there opportunity for continuing education and wage progression and career progression in your organization? That Those are tools for retention. How is the workplace culture? One thing I heard several times during this study uh, was that the medical lab workforce is made up of introverts. That's very interesting. And there's certainly, I'm sure there's truth to that. But is that by any chance a stereotype that could be hindering some retention or recruitment? Is there a presumption that workers want to be left to themselves that maybe isn't universally true? So I would check those assumptions. If they're true, great, work with it. That You want a satisfied workforce. But if that's not universally true, it can lead to dissatisfaction. So you know, check your workplace and make sure that your assumptions are correct. And in all the studies I've seen, turnover is much more expensive than uh, efforts to uh, retain workers. With turnover, you've got to pay for new recruitment costs and onboarding, um, you know, keeping someone employed. You can retain those skills, that knowledge base, just more attention to retention. It's not just the lab field. It's all healthcare fields that it's somehow easier to think about producing more at the spigot, at the education spigot, than to think about looking to see how we keep the employees that we have. So that's longer than an elevator speech, but I thank you for letting me get <laughs> Allison, do you have any final thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I don't have a, a beautiful metaphor like Sue has with the spigot and the, the bucket that's never full. And she did speak to uh, the compensation wages and turnover rates. It, it's never a fun subject to talk about the dollars behind investing your laboratory workforce. But it is a truth out there as well. But I can speak more about the culture um, that Sue uh, had mentioned. Um, I think that employee engagement and good leaders are key for retention. Another role that is underappreciated are educators. I know an exceptional educator and coordinator that I've spoken about in this podcast from the Medical Laboratory Training Program in San Diego, and she is one of the reasons why I enjoy my profession in the laboratory. So today, as a lab manager, when I speak with my employees or my peers, I encourage a positive work environment. What most lab professionals say may not know is that there is another professional aspect to this field. If you come into this field expecting this is an end to your career path by loading carousels or pushing buttons on a, um, on a machine, then you have fed fuel to my fire as a lab professional. And that is to encourage you that you can do more to protect and promote your profession as a lab professional. I agree with both of you. And to add as well, that in terms of retention, I think we should also put focus on generational differences because many of our younger lab professionals, from what I've heard and seen in our reports, they, they do want in more engagement. They would like to have career progression, career ladders, 
within the profession, for example, you know, some of them just don't want to be just a phlebotomist. You know, there, there was one program where they put tiers in phlebotomy. So phlebotomy one, two, three. So they know that they're moving up and that there are many other opportunities within the lab to advance and keep them interested in their jobs. Great. Any final thoughts? Anything else that you want to share that we have not covered or any final parting words that you would like to share with us? Thanks for the opportunity. I just want to say that it's really wonderful to have this opportunity to get to know the lab field better. We have our one of our first funded grants to our Center for Health Workforce Study is to address the quote-unquote allied health workforce. And so uh, through that grant, um, we're exploring and researching and examining a lot of different issues around a lot of different occupations that often don't get enough attention in the healthcare workforce. And uh, you had mentioned up front that uh, we also have a policy brief that addresses the clinical lab workforce. And that was an outgrowth of our study with ASCP where we put it in the context of uh, a brief and the impacts of COVID on that workforce. So that's available on our website. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, spend time with this workforce. We've learned a lot. And then we we are building that into further conversations as we uh, work with other organizations, other research projects to spread the word about uh, the, the lab workforce, lab occupations, what their needs are, what their strengths are, and hopefully we can do what we can through the Center for Health Workforce Studies to support this very valuable function. Yeah, I encourage everyone to read that policy brief. There's a lot of important information in there. Um, we are, uh, Sue Montgomery is actually writing a, a piece about it in our newsletter. It's also on the ASCP website, and it's linked to UW's website where you can access the policy brief as well. Thank you to Edna and Dr. Mulder for conducting and inviting me on this podcast and meeting Sue and talking with her from her perspective. I am grateful for you allowing me to speak to my perspective as a laboratory professional and be able to relay to you my experiences and my thoughts that align a lot with your report and findings. I hope to work with you guys more, or um, I'm happy to answer any other questions, or likewise, or speak to you about um, how we can grow and cultivate this profession. It is important to fill in that generational gap. That is my need, being a younger lab professional. And I have a lot of faith in this workforce to be even greater for years to come. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for participating. This has been a really interesting discussion. And I'm sure that our listeners have some great takeaways from the conversation that we had with you all today. Speaking of our listeners, I want to remind everyone to tell your colleagues about Inside the Lab and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And as always, you can collect your CME and CMLE for listening by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASP store on our website at www.asp.org.